All right, story time. Story time today, we're telling a story of fruitfulness. Fruitfulness. It was Jesus who said in John 15, verse 8, listen to this very carefully. He said, by this my Father is glorified to his disciples and then through us, to us as well. By this my Father is glorified that you bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciples. Whoa, whoa. By this my Father is glorified that you bear much fruit and thereby prove to be my disciples. So you think fruitfulness is a big deal to God? In a word, uh, yes. According to Jesus here, fruitfulness in the lives of God's children is the proof that they are genuinely saved and of the kingdom of God and the Lord Jesus Christ. Genuine, ripe, Holy Spirit-produced fruit is the telltale sign of a person truly transformed, born again, again, with the gospel of Jesus Christ living for him. Fruit matters to God. That is why John the Baptist said, bear fruit in keeping with repentance. This is why Jesus said, a healthy tree cannot bear good fruit or bad fruit. A healthy tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor a diseased tree bear good fruit. In other words, if you're truly born of God, you bear fruit for God. And if you're not truly born of God, you cannot bear fruit for God. This is why Paul prayed that the church would be filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. This is why Paul so also prayed that we would walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to Him, bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God. So this just in, God cares about fruit. God cares about fruit on your tree. And we're going to hear today, he takes it so seriously that the trees that don't bear fruit, he's going to cut down. God sent his son to save us, but not just so we just sit there and do nothing. He didn't send his son to save us so we get our fire insurance and put our feet up and say, ah, life is good, let's just relax. He saved us to bear fruit through us. In fact, it's impossible to be truly saved and not eventually bear fruit for the Lord Jesus Christ. It's impossible to stay dormant year after year after year after year. At some point, true conversion must result in true fruit. For those whom Jesus has justified, he will sanctify and one day glorify. This is the calling of our lives in Jesus Christ. Are we truly saved in Christ? If we are, we bear fruit for him. So that is why then today Jesus takes the time to tell a story of fruitfulness. And that is why then we today will also read and tell the story of fruitfulness just because of how much it means to God. Luke chapter 13 is where we are today. In verses 1 to 5 of chapter 15, 13, this is our context. And verses... Six to nine will be our parable. So let's look first at our context. Luke 13, verse one, says this. There were some present at that very time who told him, Jesus, about the Galileans whose blood Pilate had mingled with their sacrifices. And he answered them, do you think that these Galileans were worse sinners than all the other Galileans because they suffered in this way? No, I tell you, but unless you repent... This is a huge part of the message today. Unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. Or those 18 on whom the tower in Siloam fell and killed them. Do you think that they were worse offenders than all the others who lived in Jerusalem? He repeats this phrase again. No, I tell you. But unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. That's our context. Now here's our parable. Here's our story for today. Verse 6. And he told this parable. A man had a fig tree planted in his vineyard, and he came seeking fruit on it and found none. 
And he said to the vine dresser, look, for three years now, I've come seeking fruit on this fig tree, and I find none. Cut it down. Why should it use up the ground? And he answered, the vine dresser, the servant answered him, sir, 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 let it alone this year also, until I dig around it and put on manure. Then if it should bear fruit next year, well and good. But if not, then you can cut it down. A story of repentance, a story of fruitfulness, a story of what God wants to see within our lives, a story that needs to be prayed over right now before our God. Oh, Father, would you speak to us? Oh, Father, I pray. This is a supernatural moment containing supernatural words resulting in supernatural life change. Oh, Father, would you do that? I pray that we might glorify you with our lives. You desire to see fruit in our lives, Lord, and the clock is ticking and time is running out, Lord. So I pray while we still have chance, while the age of grace is still here, Lord, before the tree is cut down, I pray that you would help every single one of us understand the urgency of the gospel in our own lives and the gospel in others. May today be an incredible day for many people who are, have no idea what's about to hit them, Lord, but I pray it would hit them with such love and truth and grace and wisdom and conviction and, yes, repentance resulting in fruitfulness. Oh, Lord, may it be so. Excited now to be obedient to you as best we can in your strength and grace and to see how God's people respond. In Jesus' name, amen, church? Amen. Amen. All right, let's get started in our story of fruitfulness. The first observation we see is this. Listen, God must see fruit from our lives. God wants to see and must see fruit from my life. As we begin to tackle this parable of the barren fig tree in verses 6 to 9, it's important that we define the variables or define the characters. First, we have the owner of the vineyard in this parable. The owner represents God. God who is overseeing his kingdom, overseeing his people, overseeing nations. Second, we have the fig tree. The fig tree represents the nation of Israel, specifically in this text. Again, referring to Israel, we will see there's some application beyond this, but the fig tree represents Israel. Thirdly, we have a servant or a vine dresser. The servant represents Jesus Christ and his intercession on our behalf. So three main characters. We have the owner, represents God, the fig tree representing Israel, and the vine dresser or the servant representing Jesus Christ and his prayers, his intercession on our behalf. I want you to notice that within this parable, uh, three times the word fruit appears in four verses. Notice also that two of the times that the owner, which is God, is seeking fruit from the fig tree. And the third time the word fruit is mentioned, it's the servant saying, if we don't see fruit in one year's time, then let's cut it down. So you don't need to be a scholar then to conclude that the owner is very passionate about seeing fruit on his trees. Also, the vine dresser agrees with this, and they both have this right expectation that the trees they plant will bear fruit, otherwise these trees will cease to exist, they will be cut down. And let me say it again, Uh, the owner and the vine dresser are very passionate that fruit is seen within the trees that they have planted. The owner here is not into wasting time with dead and barren trees. It's not that the owner is impatient, but rather he rightly wants to see fruit. Look at verse 7. In verse 7 it says there, And he said to the vine dresser, Look, for three years now I've come seeking fruit on this fig tree, and I find none. Cut it down. Why should it use up the ground? Now that's a very fair question. He's planted the tree. He rightly, again, wants to see fruit come through this tree. 
Now, it's important in our context here that according to Leviticus chapter 19, the law of Moses tells us that fruit from newly planted trees was not to be gathered for the first three years. Leviticus 19 also tells us in the fourth year, the fruit was to be picked, harvested, or gathered and presented as an offering of thanks to the Lord. Which means then, that is assuming the Jews, as Jesus tells this parable, understand the law of Moses, which they would, and get the context of this, this means that the farmer or the owner, when a tree was planted, would not take the fruit for himself until the fifth year. Which also means then, if the owner in this parable had been looking and waiting for fruit for three years, we have to assume then it was three years where fruit could not be picked, one year for the fruit was for the harvest, and then three years of expectation, we assume then this tree was seven years old. This indicates the patience of the owner. This indicates the care of the tree for the owner. This indicates the work towards the tree of this owner, and of course, of this vine dresser. A lot of love was put towards this tree. And this, of course, as we now turn over to the gospel of Jesus Christ, the patience of God was proven through the ministry of the Lord Jesus Christ. God sent His only Son to be born among people, to live with His people, to preach the good news of salvation to His people. But the people of Israel, representing the fig tree, they would not listen. Their eyes were blind. Their ears were shut. Their hearts were hard. Love ones, think of how many times in the gospel Jesus was exasperated before people. You wicked and sinful generation. You who cannot hear. Oh, what should I do in this, in this time? He kept saying these sayings of frustration as the people that he came to save would not listen to him. Think of how and why Jesus wept. He wept over the fact that the ears of Israel were closed, that their eyes were blind. That their hearts were so hard. John 1.11 tells us that Jesus came to his own and his own did not receive him. But again, think about the message here. Think of this parable. Think of what God is saying. The owner is seeking fruit, seeking fruit. Think of the Trinity of God. Together, how much the Trinity longs to see fruit in your life and mine through the people of God. The Father calls, the Son saves, the Spirit of God empowers. And the reason they do this, the reason the Father calls and chooses, the reason the Son is sent to die and to save us from our sins, and the reason the Spirit of God then lives within us. Imagine that, being temples of the Holy Spirit is because they desire to see fruit from our lives. Loved ones, again, hear this. God rightly wants to see fruit from His children, wants to see fruit from His church, wants to see fruit from His people, because it's the fruit that brings Him glory. So much so that God the Father was willing to extend His gospel from the Jews to the Gentiles. Why? That fruit would be seen, that people would be saved, that glory would be given to Him. And so many passages and parables in Scripture speaks to this truth, that God sent the message to His people in Israel, but then went beyond the Israelites to the Gentiles, that others might be saved. So many parables and passages. One of them is found in Matthew 22. Let me paraphrase it for you. It's the parable of the wedding feast. And Jesus tells this parable in Matthew where the king sets up a feast for his son. This amazing feast. And he calls his servants, go out and call those who are invited to this incredible feast. So the servants go out and they invite those who are on the list of the invitations. But those invited, the Bible says they paid no attention. 
They would not come. So the king comes back and says, oh, they, they must not understand. Let's sweeten the deal. He sends his servants back out with some more details. No, they don't understand. This meal is the best meal you've ever imagined. The fattened calf, the wine that is flowing, the incredible delicious taste representing the kingdom of heaven in heaven. You can't miss out this meal. You, you have to hear what you're invited to. But again, the people invited ignored the request of this incredible, beautiful, amazing, abundant feast of goodness and love. And they paid no attention, and they're so evil to the point, it says, they took some of the servants, inviting them to this feast of love, and they beat them, and at sometimes they killed them. And the parable continues, and the king got very angry. And he says, forget those who are invited. He says to his servants, go gather all who will come. He says, invite as many as you find. Amazing. Go out all the streets. And just share the invitation. And whoever hears it and wants to come, let them come in. And why? Because the king is looking to bless in the gospel. That fruit might be seen. That people might be saved. That lives might be transformed. That joy might be known. Love in so many ways to say it. We just need to hear it. God must see fruit in our lives. And make no mistake about it. Where the gospel is truly received, fruit will be also seen. You can't truly receive the gospel and not bear fruit. So it's critically important here that we understand that fruit must be seen in our trees if we are saved in Jesus Christ. Now some of you have questions, well, what kind of fruit are we talking about exactly? Well, this kind of fruit in particular as it relates to our parable, which leads us to our second point, exhortation, observation, this. God requires repentance from my life. God requires repentance from my life. And this takes us to our context in verses 1 to 5 of Luke 13. Look at verse 1 again. It says here, there were some present at that very time who told him about the Galileans whose blood Pilate had mingled with their sacrifices. And he answered them, do you think that these Galileans were worse sinners than all the other Galileans because they suffered in this way? No, I tell you, but unless, here's his point, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. What's happening here in verses 1 to 3? Verse 1 is referring to an historical event of Pontius Pilate and his awful treatment toward the Jews. We don't know for sure what happened in history, but the actual event might have been when Pilate seized money from the Jewish temple treasury to fund an aqueduct that he wanted to build. When the Jews found out that he was taking money from their temple treasury, they were rightly infuriated and they gathered to protest against the actions of Pilate, in this case specifically Galilean Jews. And apparently what had happened is Pilate, in response to those who were protesting against him, what he did is he gathered Roman soldiers who went in civilian clothes so they could not be identified. The soldiers mingled in with this crowd. At the signal when it was given, they all took out daggers and began to murder people in their midst. This could be what is being referred to as people here are indicating the story of Pilate murdering Galilean Jews in the midst of their sacrifices. But notice what Jesus does here. Instead of dealing with the sin of Pilate, and instead of dealing with the sin of those killed by Pilate, he addresses the more pertinent issue, the most pertinent issue. He addresses the sin of us all, the sin of mankind. Apparently here we know this, some Jews were drawing the conclusion that the reason these Galileans must have died in this way was God punishing them for some extraordinary sins of some kind in their life. But Jesus shuts down this theory right away in verse 3. He says, no, 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 no. Unless you repent, you will all die. 
And just in case there was any confusion with Pilate murdering Jews, Jesus now provides in verse 4 this example from a natural disaster. Look at verse 4. Or the 18 on whom the tower and Siloam fell and killed them, do you think that they were worse offenders than all the others who lived in Jerusalem? No, I tell you, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. Why is Jesus doing this? Because the Jews held a theology that personal disaster resulted from personal sin. They were always looking at when someone went through a tragedy, that must have meant they had sinned in their family or sinned in their life. This is proven in John 9, when the disciples come up with the blind man and they turn to Jesus. Jesus, because this man is blind, who has sinned? Was it his sin or the sin of his parents? And Jesus is like, it's not his sin or the parents' sin. He is made this way that the works of God might be manifest and glorified through him. Jesus was correcting their improper thinking that personal tragedy is a result of personal sin. Our understanding and application here is important. That we cannot judge why and when things happen in this world. We like to think that bad things happen to bad people and good things happen to good people. But you look at enough examples and all that breaks down. It just doesn't add up. This isn't true. Bad things happen to good people and good things happen to, quote, bad people. Listen, missionaries for the gospel sold up for Jesus Christ die. They lose their lives for natural causes. They lose their lives of horrible causes, being murdered and martyred for their faith in Jesus Christ. Pastors who give their lives for the faithfulness of God's word and preaching, they also get cancer and lose their lives. Christians do receive tragedy, even the best of Christians following the Lord and wanting to love Him with all their heart, soul, mind, and strength. This past year was the highest year ever for the persecution and the slaughter of Christians across this world. Got to get our mindsets to hear that bad things happen to good people and good things happen to bad people. God is the one who is sovereign. We should be slow to judge and try to assume things. Because the moment we do that, that will break down in a hurry. I remember just a couple of years ago when New Orleans was obliterated by the hurricane and how many people so quickly started saying, oh, it's because of all the sin in that city and playing God and playing judge over them. That is foolish and that is premature. We simply do not know. And Jesus proves that here. The one pushback, I'll push back against myself in this. What we're learning here, it's very hard to connect personal sin with personal suffering. Be very, very hesitant to do that in people's lives. Jesus is telling us that. The one connection that's a little easier to make in our context and our parable is the sin of a nation and the suffering of our nation. Because after all, Israel would be judged because of their neglect of the Lord Jesus Christ and his gospel. And we know in our day, it's only a matter of time when a a nation rejects Jesus Christ, loves sin, runs away from the gospel, loves self. It's only a matter of time between consequences begin to start to be seen and the nation's decay is evident among all who are watching. What Jesus does here and proves here and does it twice, he's like, listen, your focus is on the temporary tragic death of this world but you're missing the greater issue he's like you better pay attention to yourselves unless you also will perish remember the context of this story is found in the parable of the fruit and the fruit here with jesus is helping them understand you're so focused on these people's actions and their sin resulting in their death you have to see the greater issue it's not dying here on this earth it's what happens after death there's a death you must be terribly afraid of that's why he says twice unless you repent you also will perish 
And the parish he's speaking of is a separation from God in hell for eternity, in darkness, weeping and gnashing of teeth, as Jesus says over and over again. He's trying to tell the people, you're so focused here, look beyond, repent, or you likewise will perish. The Galileans had it bad, you wait till you die apart from Jesus Christ, and you see how bad you have it, is what Jesus is saying. Repent or perish. Not my words, Jesus' words. He's telling them in love. And the parable is supporting. True repentance will bring fruit from our lives. What is repentance? Repentance is a turning from sin and a turning to God. Repentance is rightly described as a 180 degree turn from where we were in sin and now where we want to go to in God. Repentance is more than just, I don't like my sin, I'm turning 90 degrees and staying neutral. That's not biblical repentance. Repentance is not, I'm sorry for the way my life turned out. I'm sorry for how I hurt myself. I'm sorry for my circumstances. Repentance is, I've sinned against God. Repentance is my sin has offended the one and only and holy God. So repentance then says, I'm grieved over my sin towards God. I turn past 90, 180, and not only am I, am, I, am I resolved to not sin, but now I'm resolved to go towards the things of the Lord Jesus Christ. Repentance is I hate my sin. I love my God. The word for repent is metaneo, which literally is mind change, change of mind. True repentance in our lives in the the gospel is, I hate my sin, I'm grieved over my sin, I now turn my mind towards a whole new way of living, and when your mind is set and being transformed by the gospel, your thoughts change, your behavior change, your life change, your love change, everything about you begins to change. That is the indication of true repentance in our lives. Our perceptions, our affections a very disposition, it changes. I turn from sin and I embrace the Lord Jesus Christ. Some of us have stopped at 90 degrees. That's not true biblical repentance. It's forget that. And now I'm going with my life for the Lord Jesus. That's why Jesus says, unless you truly repent, metaneo, you will perish. Because those who stand neutral, they're not saved. They turn towards the full things of the gospel and the love of Jesus Christ. Repentance, listen, is an event that begins the Christian life, but it's also a process that continues on within the Christian life. This is why Jesus says repentance is so important. Oswald Chambers says repentance is the bedrock of the Christian life. It is. Now, as we pair our context, verses 1 to 5, with our parable, verses 6 to 9, and then with the rest of Scripture, I think what we find right here in terms of the importance and necessity of repentance, we see four applications and four groups of people that this parable, this context, applies to. I'm going to put them on the screen here beside me. The first people that this parable speaks to, these verses speak to, is Israel. The first point of application is to Israel. It's their last chance to repent. Now, in terms of the nation of Israel, Scripture says that the Axe is laid to the root of the tree. These are the warnings to, again, 
The people of Israel, listen, listen, if you, if, you, if you reject this gospel, if you don't listen to what God is saying, the act is about to come down upon the tree and it will be cut down. Look what John the Baptist said in Luke chapter 3 here. John the Baptist said this, he said, Therefore to the crowds that came out to be baptized by him, and this is a greeting of all greetings by a pastor for those who want to be baptized, you brood of vipers, he says to them. But he must have known their heart in some way because these Pharisees and religion-filled people were coming out. Who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Bear fruit, bear fruits in keeping with repentance. See what he's saying there? If you're truly repentant, your life is beyond religion. Your life is about relationship. And do not begin to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. Do not rely on ritual for your salvation. Do not rely on religion for your salvation. Do not rely on the works of man for your salvation. There are, there are tens of thousands of people across this land right now sitting in churches and entire denominations who are sitting there thinking they're relying on ritual, they're relying on religion, they're relying on being better than the person beside them, they're relying on their effort to be saved in Jesus Christ. They are relying on something that has nothing to do with genuine conversion and repentance in the gospel of Jesus Christ. Tens of thousands of people in this nation and some even here right now in this place relying on I'm a good person. I've said some prayers. I show up to church every now and then. you got to hear that though. That's about you. That's what you've done. That's not the gospel. The gospel is what Christ has done. And John the Baptist looks at them. Do not begin to say to yourselves, we got Abraham. We're relying on him for our salvation. He's like, that's not the gospel. He says, God is able to raise up from these stones, raise up children for Abraham. The effort of man is zero. And the message here in this parable of Israel, this is your last chance to repent from your own effort, your own works, and to embrace by faith the living God, Jesus Christ who was sent to die for our sins. Religion, loved ones, is not enough. Religion will never be enough. It's relationship, and repentance is the breakthrough of eternal life. And this is why Jesus looked over, oh, Jerusalem, oh, Jerusalem, I'd like to gather you as a hen gathers its brood or its chicks. Jesus was so sorrowful over the people who would not listen. And this is why this parable was given. The first application is to Israel. The second application is to the church. To the church, bear fruit through repentance. Let us be wise enough to recognize the need for repentance in the church as well. We read this text, we see this parable, it should sober us for the apparent lack of fruit in our day and in our nation. Why? It's repentance that precedes revival. It's repentance that calls us to a return to God. It's repentance that allows us to be broken over sin before him. Look at what Jesus said in Revelation 2 to the church in Ephesus. And the context of this passage, he says this, I know your works, I know your passion for truth, I know your stand against false teachers, I know the deeds that you have done. All these great things the church in Ephesus has done at this point. But he says, but this I have against you. That you abandon the love you had at first. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen, repent and do the works you did at first. If not, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. For the church today, for the church here at Harvest Oakville, for the church in Oakville, the church in Ontario, the church in this nation. Listen, you need to know this. This church is just 10 years old. This church did not exist 10 years ago. It didn't exist Five other churches that we've planted did not exist 10 years ago. 
Why is this church here? I fundamentally believe there are denominations in the past that had a lampstand for Jesus Christ, preaching his word, exalting Jesus Christ, depending on him. But for whatever reason and whatever happened, Satan seeped in. Did God really say? And people start, stop relying on God and start relying on man. And the Bible gets closed and the prayers begin to be seized and the social country club rises up and the power is gone. And Jesus says, fine, you're going to be that way. You've lost your love. You're about your own little liberal society. I take my lantern from you and I give it to someone else. And he has given us, wait, 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 wait. He has given us a lampstand. But who says it stays with us? The only way it stays with us is if we are faithful to God's word and faithful to God's glory and not fearing man, but fearing God. It's only a matter of time if we stop doing what we're called to do. The lampstand's gone from us and given to someone else who will be faithful to the Lord. That's why repentance is so needed in our day because repentance calls the church back to that which God truly blesses and ignites in us an understanding that we can't do it on our own, that we are so sinful, that our hearts are corrupt, that apart from the gospel we are done and we are dead. Every man, every woman, every family in this place right now, every pastor, every leader, every elder, you are smoked without the gospel of Jesus Christ. I am dead without the gospel of Jesus Christ. What's our response? Repentance is our response returning to the love that God first gave to us, that we would not stray, that we would humble ourselves before him. We would beg for his grace and mercy again because we are lost without him. The call for repentance upon the church was then and is now and will be until he comes to Israel, to the church. Listen to unbelievers. To unbelievers. Here's the application. Repent or perish. Repent or perish. Anyone reading this text and understanding with any kind of wisdom will draw the conclusion, I don't stand a chance apart from repentance. And what is true repentance? It is a sincere grieving over sin. Repentance is I have sinned against God. Again, let me say it again. Repentance is not I'm sorry for the way my life turned out and I wish it was better. Repentance is I've sinned against the Holy Spirit. And I'm desperate for his grace and love and forgiveness now. The ministry of John the Baptist was repent. The ministry of Jesus was repent. The kingdom of heaven is at hand. The ministry of Peter in the first sermon, repent and be baptized. Repent, repent, repent. A turning from sin because there is no true conversion apart from repentance. True conversion is, consists of two things. Repentance from sin and faith towards God. Conversion must be both things. It can't be one without the other. But this, for sure, there is no true conversion without repentance. A lot of people are, hey, walk an aisle, say a prayer, because believe in Jesus, he'll make your life better. But if you don't know what you're being forgiven from and why you believe in Jesus, there cannot be true salvation. There must be repentance and faith. Not just faith, not just repentance. True conversion is, I hate my sin. By faith now, I run to Jesus Christ. Repentance and faith results in true conversion in the gospel of Jesus Christ. And I want you to see within this parable, I want you to see this, the urgency. The time is running out. The owner's like, let's cut down the tree. Let's cut it down. Vine dresser's like, wait, 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 give it another year. Patience of God. Listen, listen, time is running out. The clock is ticking. Feel the urgency. And you are here today as a person who is separated from God. You do not know him. You've rejected him. 
oh, I'll just live a couple more years and just enjoy the good life and fill myself with pleasures, and maybe I'll get to it around it. Man, you, 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 are, you are playing a dangerous, dangerous game. And I did that as a teenager. Maybe one day I'll get around to it, and by the grace of God alone, here I stand, by the grace of God. But who has that guarantee? No one has it. No one has it. You don't have it. The clock is ticking. And yet the message of the gospel still goes out today. That you are here to hear it. And Lord, Lord willing, receive it. Application to Israel. Application to the church. Application to believers. Fourthly, the application to hard-hearted Christians. To the hard-hearted Christians, here it is for, for you, for me, for us. Break up our fallow ground. Break up our fallow ground. How critical it is as believers, we recognize the need for repentance in our lives as well. Do not be deceived into thinking that repentance is only at the beginning of the Christian life. It is ongoing throughout the Christian life. Repentance then as a believer doesn't save us. It cleanses us though. It restores us to God. But how subtle our hard hearts become. How complacent we become. How lightly we treat our sin Casually conversing with God, we become spiritually dull and callous of heart. Let me ask you, is your heart hard? Has your heart grown calloused to the things of the Lord? Is there very little hunger for the Word of God? Is there very little love for the things of the Lord Jesus Christ? Is there very little volume to your voice in singing praises to our God? Is there very little contemplation of the Gospel in your life? Is there very little love for others in your life? Is it self, self, and self? Has your heart become hard? Is there indifference? Is there apathy? Is there complacency? Is there lethargy? These are all signs of a heart that is hardened. Here's the danger of a lack of repentance in our life. Thomas Watson says it this way. He says, by delay of repentance, when we delay to repent, sin strengthens. The longer we let the pattern go of refusing in our pride to admit our sin and to ask for God's forgiveness, the longer we go, the quieter the Holy Spirit's voice gets in our lives and the more strengthened our sin becomes. By delay of repentance, sin strengthens and the heart hardens. You delay repentance, sin gets stronger, heart gets harder. And look what Watson says. He says, the longer ice freezes, the harder it is to be broken. And people stray for month after month and year after year. And in their pride, I won't give in. I won't admit. I won't be this. Your fault. Your fault. Not mine. And they distance themselves from God. And the ice over their heart, layer after layer after layer. You know what has to happen for God to bring you back? God has to crush you. God has to crush me. And the longer we go, the bigger the hammer comes down on our lives. Sometimes we lose a job. Sometimes we have illness. Sometimes we have these things. Sometimes tragedy hits our life in forms of trial because it's the only way God gets our attention. How? I don't know. I'm not God. But I know he disciplines those that he loves. And the longer we go for truly his children, that hammer will come down and smash us to pieces to let us know once and for all we're not God. We're not in charge. We need him. And we must be broken and repented before him. And then in that moment, though, the grace and the love and the mercy of God washes and washes and washes. And we are a puddle of nothing on the floor. At the same time, we know how loved we are. But it will take a hammer of God to crush us to see our pride and our hard hearts softened. That we might know once again the riches and the love of God, and some of you could be in that place right now. Why is my life the way it is? Why are these things happening? Could it be that God's love is upon you to call you, to break you, to love you? This is why Hosea 10, verse 12 says, and I love this verse so much. He says, 
sow for yourselves righteousness and reap steadfast love. Here it is. Break up your fallow ground. Turn over the hard soil that is there. Get the crust gone and let the fertile, soft, rich nutrients of the soil be exposed that seeds might be planted and fruit might be seen. Break up your fallow ground for it is time to seek the Lord that he may come and rain righteousness upon you. For those who repent today, the righteousness of God rains down upon us. The love of God rains down. Such beautiful imagery in Scripture. Thank you, Lord, for your word. This is the path and the call and the need for repentance. And I just want to make sure you know as pastor of this church, God is speaking to me personally in this area. The last couple of weeks have been a painful week, time period for me as God is revealing to me areas of my heart that frankly sicken me. Going up to my wife Jill this week and says, my heart scares me. I don't love enough. I don't hunger enough. I need the Lord. I need the Lord to wash me and cleanse me. I can't do this on my own. But I gotta tell you, I don't feel guilty in that. I mean, it's discouraging to see your sin for what it is. But the discouragement when you run to the Lord so quickly repaced by the faith and the love of the Lord as the gospel cleanses you again. And you see your Savior and once again loves you, embraces you, washes you, restores you, strengthens you, and encourages you. But a failure to repent is a failure to see and receive those things that I just mentioned. But I'm there right now. And in some ways, it's a very exciting place to be. God wants to see fruit in our lives. And God requires repentance from our lives. And this leads us to the third observation is this, or command. I must never abuse God's patience. I must never ignore his justice. I must never abuse God's patience and never ignore his justice. Look now at verse 7. Verse 7, it says, And he said to the vine dresser, the owner, Look now, for three years I have come seeking fruit on this tree, and I find none. Cut it down. Why should it use up the ground? But notice Jesus here. And the vine dresser answered him, Sir, let it alone this year also, until I dig around it and put on manure. Then if it should bear fruit next year, well and good. But if not, then you can cut it down. Consider the role of Jesus, our intercessor here within this parable. The Father sees hearts, hearts of humans. The Father sees the rejecting of his love. The Father sees the obstinate pride of men. The Father's seen enough. He's seen enough. They won't listen. They won't listen. I've waited long enough. And he rightly and justly wants that tree or those trees to be cut down. But the Savior steps in. An incredible grace, love, and long-suffering. The Savior says, wait, 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 wait. Give it one more year. Let me tend to the tree. Let me dig around the tree. Let me fertilize the tree. Let's care for the tree and let's see if fruit comes one more year. And maybe there will be fruit. But if not, then we can cut it down there. But Jesus is really saying to his father, then he's father, father, let me send the gospel again. Let me sow seeds of salvation again. Let's send our message of everlasting love again. Let's shine our light upon them again. Then we will see a fruit is born. Let me see if fruit comes. And if it does, we rejoice, yes. But if not, then we will, we will cut it down. I want you to make sure you understand you're in this parable. This isn't good cop Jesus and bad cop God. This isn't the Father's an angry God and Jesus is the nice God and the one we want to kind of be friends with. This is a parable illustrating the two aspects of God's character. God's justice and God's mercy. 
Both are beautiful. Both are awesome. It's just a story illustrating that God is just and God is gracious. God is merciful and God is holy. And God will see justice go through. And both are right. And both are awesome. And both are needed. God is justice. God is mercy. 2 Peter 3.9 The Lord is not slow to fulfill His promises. Some count slowness. But is patient towards you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach, listen, repentance. The patience of God. Wait, wait, wait. Wait another year. Let's tend to the tree. Let's see if fruit comes. Many of us know verse 9 in 2 Peter 3. What about verse 10? Verse 10, the very next verse says, but the day of the Lord will come like a thief. The day of the Lord is the judgment of God. And it says, and the heavens will pass away with a roar. Be very careful right now if you are someone who sits on the fence of salvation, kind of in the church, but mostly in the world, kind of playing a game, but really there's not much going on. Again, one day I'll get to that, you know, Christian stuff, but right now, listen, listen, could it be that you're here today, and really you are here today, only because Jesus stepped in front of the owner and said, wait, 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 let's give it some more time. Let's keep preaching the gospel Let's keep sending the light. Let's keep hearing the message. I mean, you think about that right now. The clock is ticking. Urgency is upon us. Time is running out because of the grace and the love of God, Jesus Christ, through his intercessory prayers for us and upon his people, God has withheld judgment that you could sit here today to hear this message one more time and who knows if tomorrow will be the day when all this ends. Today is the day of grace. Right now, the door of salvation is still open. But when Christ returns, the door of salvation closes and the door of judgment opens up. And the moment the door of judgment opens up, the opportunity for salvation is gone. Do not, do not abuse the patience of our God. Soon enough, God will say, enough, enough, enough time has been granted. Justice must be served. You are here right now and you've not responded to the gospel, won't you please, won't you please receive the invitation to the feast of all feasts? Won't you please receive the message of love that God extends to you to save you from yourself and the misery of eternal separation from him and a hell you do not even want to begin to imagine how awful it will be? This is why Jesus says, unless you repent, you likewise will perish. You are here today to hear the love of God through the message of you cannot save yourself. But there's one who can. His name is Jesus Christ. Listen. Do not, do not abuse the pages of God and listen, do not ignore his justice either. The last phrase in this parable is, but if not, you can cut it down. What is that? You can cut it down. That is judgment. That is judgment. Again, again, it's amazing how Jesus does not hide from this. He does not hide from phrases of weeping and gnashing of teeth. He doesn't hide from the reality of hell. Jesus doesn't hide it, avoid it, soften it, or ignore it, and therefore neither can we. You know, we're filled with a lot of fear in our day. We fear a lot of things. We fear a lot of earthly circumstances, but there is no greater fear than the judgment for the unbeliever who is a rejecter of Jesus Christ. Jesus speaks about this in one page, one page before. Look at Luke chapter 12, verse 4. Look at Luke chapter 12, verse 4. Luke 12, verse 4. Jesus says, 
I tell you, my friends, do not fear those who kill the body. Luke 12, 4. I tell you, my friends, do not fear those who kill the body. And after that, they have nothing more they can do. This is a very, very powerful verse for us as believers in Jesus Christ. In the time that we live, in the times of ISIS, in the time of the persecution of the church, in the time of many, many Christians being martyred and slaughtered for their faith in Jesus Christ, this is so powerful to look at and to understand. You can kill me, but after that, you can't do anything. Sure, you can take my physical life away, but in reality, as a follower of Jesus Christ, the moment I die, my life truly begins. Because of Jesus Christ and what he's done, go ahead, cut off my head. But at the end of the day, man, my day will end up better than yours. And this is just reality. This is just truth in Jesus Christ. This is the hope we have. This is the promise. Jesus, don't, don't be afraid of those who can kill you and after that do nothing. What a powerful verse for our hearts. What a powerful verse to say to our children right now. What a powerful verse just to speak over our lives. Are we really fearful of all these things when in the end you can kill me but then eternal life begins, then the glory of Jesus Christ is seen, then I come face to face with my favor, then sin is once and for all gone forever and ever in my life. Praise the Lord, hallelujah. Go ahead. Go ahead. Make my day. And look at verse 5 now though. Here's where the real fear should be held. Jesus says, but I will warn you whom to fear. It's almost like he says this knowing exactly where we'd be 2,000 years later. I will warn you whom to fear. Fear him who after he is killed has authority to cast into hell. Yes, I tell you, fear him. See, this is why Jesus says the Galileans who were murdered, that's one thing. But unless you repent, you will likewise perish and you'll be subject to judgment under the one who has the authority to cast into hell. He says, fear that. Not my words, loved ones, the words of Jesus. Fear him. There's only one person who has that authority. It's the one who will judge the living and the dead. In the coming of his appearing, everyone will stand before him and every knee will bow, every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. And he has given authority to judge all people over all time. And he alone has that authority. No one else, not Satan, no person, no leader, no ruler, Jesus Christ. And he says, fear him. Fear him. This is why repentance is everything. This is why we desperately want to see fruit from our lives to prove that we are his disciples. This is why we humble ourselves before him and say, God, have mercy on me, on us, sinners. This is why we don't abuse his patience and do not ignore his justice. Because it's not a game we're playing. It's such a serious thing. And by the grace of God, Jesus has stood before the owner and said, wait, wait, wait. Wait, give it another year. Let's send the gospel again. And let's see if fruit is seen upon more people. And the only reason he hasn't returned is because there are more people to be saved. And could today be your day today that God opens your eyes, that God sends the message into your heart, that you respond not with pride but with humility and brokenness. And you admit, I'm a sinner and I need a savior. I'm a sinner. I run to the cross. I need the only one who can love me and rescue me from the sin that has ruined me and the sin that will cast me into hell. Oh, Jesus, I look to you and run to you. You know in this parable, Jesus stands before and says, wait, wait, wait. God is sovereign, but his prayers redirect the will of God. Cut it down. Wait, wait, wait. God relents and he does wait. 
our prayers have the same effect. God uses our prayers to weave into His sovereignty. Our prayers for our loved ones and the people we care about so much, the reality of judgment. And today God is urging us to say, how much do you really believe? How much do you really care? And how much will you really pray? Because just like Jesus saying, wait, 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 and God does, we do the same right now. God, we pray. Wait, God. Save God. Bring to you, God. Restore God. Call people to repentance, God. Today as a church, we do that. We do that together as a body, as families, as leaders. We come before the Lord in humility. And we say, help us, Lord. Forgive us, Lord. Have mercy on us, Lord. And save us, Lord. Let's bow our heads. Let's pray. Please join with me in the sincerity of this moment as I speak on behalf of us and I say, oh God, have mercy on our souls. As I ask the Lord and I confess to the Lord on behalf of us all, God, we repent. We repent that we have not loved you with our whole heart. We repent, Lord, that we have passed you by morning after morning, Jesus, as you sit there waiting for us. We have not hungered for your word. We've gone after the things of the world as opposed to the things of God. God, as a church, as a people, we repent. And I pray you would agree in the power of this moment to say before God, God, we need you. We can't do this on our own, O oh Lord. Forgive us and cleanse us. We repent, Lord, of the idols in our lives that have come before you. All the things we have worshipped. All the pleasures we have sought after. And we've ignored you. We've rejected you. We've despised you at times, Lord. Oh, forgive us. We repent. God, as a church, as a community right now, we repent that we have not loved our neighbors as ourself. We've been selfish. We've withheld love. We have pursued self-indulgence. We have catered to our own ease and comfort and needs. We have walked by people, Lord, who have needed our love and help, and we have cared not because we have been indifferent. And for that, Lord, I, we, together, we repent. We say, forgive us, God. Forgive us, God. God, we repent of the sin in our lives. It has stolen our love. We repent, Lord, of the way that we have treated other people, how we have harmed our spouses. We have treated them, Lord, with cruelty and anger. Our home, Lord, has been filled with rage at times. We have said things that we regret now so much, Lord. Our love has not been in you. Our anger has been displaced in other people. And we say, I repent of that, Lord. Our children, Lord, have not been treated as they should unkindness, cruelty, levels of abuse. Oh God, we repent. We repent, Lord, of the lust that has consumed us. The images, the thoughts. Cleanse us, Lord, from these sins, from our greed, from our worry, 
Cleanse us, Lord, as a church from our pride. So proud, so defensive, so bitter, so unforgiving. Cleanse us, Lord. We repent together, Lord. We repent together. Oh, God, I pray for this church. Pray for this church. We would not stray from you. That you would not remove your lampstand. That we would be found not to be perfect people, but people who are pursuing the one who is perfect. People of love. People of grace. People who love the Lord. People hunger for the word. People of compassion. People of humility. People of urgency. But God, we can't do this apart from you, but we repent before you that you might fill us again and may wave of mercy and wave of mercy wash over souls right now in the waves of grace and power and strengthen. May love be known because we know if we confess our sins, God is faithful and just to forgive us our sins. We know that the arms of God are open wide and he embraces you and he loves you and he hugs you. And he says, my child, I restore you, I save you, I redeem you, I cleanse you, I forgive you. And I want to use you. This is the love of God that overcomes all sin. This is the love of God that cannot be diminished. This is the love of God that saves people from death and hell. If you are here today and God is calling you to life in Him, And today is the day you turn from your sins and you repent and you now embrace by faith the forgiveness of Jesus Christ. If that is you today where you are, would you stand right now? Just stand where you are. Today is the day that Jesus Christ enters into my life. Amen. Amen, child, I see you. You today, you stand if you want to embrace the message of Jesus Christ for your life right now. Let me see you stand right now before God. Amen at the back. Amen at the back. Amen to my left. Jesus, come save me. Amen. 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 We need you, Jesus. You surrender your life to him right now. You begin praying to Jesus. I'm a sinner. I need a savior. Amen. I see all of you. If you're in overflow, stand. If you're in the lobby, stand. I see you way at the back. Call to Jesus. Jesus, save me. Jesus, love me. I see all of you. God sees all of you. And he loves you. Anyone else here today, the love of God cannot be denied. The pursuit of God cannot be diminished. Jesus Christ, make me whole. Revive my heart. Restore me to you. You are God. You are good. You are love. You are life. You are everything. pray, God, today, today is such a special day for this church as grace is known and his love is found. Restore our souls, revive our hearts, renew our lives, Lord, in every part, and reveal to me, to us, the sin that remains and lead us to the cross. Again, I pray for those standing in the name of Jesus. Their hearts are absolutely transformed in repentance and faith in Jesus Christ.
bless them so mightily. Transform them so powerfully. And may their lives be vessels for honorable use for the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ. May what you have started today, Lord, may it carry on to completion until the day that you return. Bless you, God, the only one who can give life in this way. If you sincerely embraced him, child, you are now his child. And you will never be lost. You will never be forsaken. You will always be known in the glory of God. Bless you for your faith and your courage and love today. 